Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. Today, we bring you episode one of our five-part series on Texas serial killer Henry Lee Lucas. Nick, yes, I'm not going to tell you too much about this one at mm-hmm. the outset. Just mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. we're starting the story with the harrowing journey of a Pentecostal preacher who bit off more than he could chew, a brutal and baffling double murder, and a man with a secret even more terrible than necrophilia. <laughs> This episode. What, what <laughs> he eats himself after he has sex with dead people, or does he? Is he a cannibal necrophiliac? Use your imagination. I don't want to. It's horrible. This episode is based off of a million archived newspaper articles from forty years ago, and the 2019 Netflix docu series "The Confession Killer," directed by Robert and Tacky. Oldham, which I found to be mm-hmm. totally great. That was a wonderful docu-series. Yeah, and then you did your own digging and found all the cool old newspaper articles that people forgot about. Yeah, man. There was some stuff I had not heard about. Uh-huh. So I put a lot of that in just because this is actually a really popular story, but uh-huh. you don't know that. Nope. It and could be it could be you could be the person breaking this story for all I know. Yeah. For all you know, (laughs) I promise if any of our listeners have heard this story before, you're probably still going to enjoy yourself. Nick doesn't know it, so Uh you can at least follow his innocent, uh, (laughs) childlike journey (laughs) through this monstrosity. I'm still trying to figure out what the worst of necrophilia thing is, you know? (laughs) Well, Muriel and I have been pumping our Patreon full of exclusive episodes, and we want to thank all the listeners who have recently signed up to support the show and unlock those juicy, juicy exclusive episodes. We want to thank Deborah B, Britta G, Sammy F, and hello to the kitties, NorCal Lover, Whoa. <laughs> Pamela Z, Leah P, Kira, Lee A, and thank you to Bill C and Heather M who increased their monthly pledges. Thank you. It really does help us make this podcast. We appreciate it so much. For sure. We also want to thank Stephanie W. for donating some dough through the PayPal link in our social media bio. You are the queen of the universe. All this support is mainlined directly into our veins, and you are all keeping us high on life. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for helping Muriel's Murders. All right. Whoa, this is a true story involving murder, violence, drugs, adult themes, etc. So if any listeners are like Nick and they don't like hearing about those kind of things, please consider listening to a different podcast. Plus, we're going to curse and joke around. So if you're not into that, no hard feelings. Turn us off and we'll catch you next time. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear this story? No. Okay, let's get started. Sometime in mid-September 1982, old Granny Kate disappeared from Ringgold, Texas. Ringgold was a teeny place, population 400, and 80-year-old Kate Rich was a fixture in this community. 
Kate Rich got married at 17. She had nine kids Damn. and now 31 grandkids and had lived in Ringgold for over 40 years. Now, Kate lived alone in a little house that cost her $25 a month out in the prairies of north central Texas near the Oklahoma border. She had cracked her pelvis a couple years earlier, so she spent most of her days chilling in her sitting chair, just waiting for someone to stop by, the grocer with the groceries, a friend, or one of her kids to come take her for a drive, or her state home care aide, Lois, to come by and do some laundry or whatever. So right? she's the most classic old lady in the world, just on the front porch, rocking back and forth. Yeah. Looking at the scenery. My grandma is a little more modern, but this is yeah. basically what my grandma's <laughs> yeah. up to. Uh-huh. My grandma has a tiny rocking chair that's grandma size. <laughs> and every time, <laughs> the last time I was visiting her, I kept walking to the living room and it would be quiet. And then she'd go, hello. And I would be like, Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> she just sits in this little chair and stares out the window at yeah. the birds. Yeah. You okay. Know. Great. Very classic. I am mad at you for starting the story with the disappearance of sweet Granny Kate. Well, that's how it goes. Man. Okay. Sweet Granny Kate, she sits and waits for people to come by and take her places. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of how an 80-year-old woman with no car who could barely walk was missing for three days before anyone called the police. Oh. Each time someone came to the house and found it empty and locked, they figured someone else had taken Kate for a drive in a Coke. So at any rate, eventually Kate Rich was reported missing. There was one suspect early on, and that was a caretaker and handyman the Rich family had fired earlier that year, but no one could find him. He had just disappeared. Okay. Which makes him more of a suspect, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. They did, however, find the handyman's 1966 Ford abandoned in the desert halfway across the country. The truck was found near Needles, California, about a week later with a big knife in the cab and blood spots dotting the interior. What? Okay, so he's a suspect or another victim. Yeah, maybe. I mean, one thing that to keep in mind, especially in this episode one, uh-huh. is that just because things are there doesn't mean that they're like actually evidence. And we're also pre-DNA, right? So DNA existed, Muriel. The humans just couldn't do the science for it yet. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think you're showing people your real true colors. Yeah. That's a joke, but that's also not a joke. Okay. <laughs> yes, that we understand me, you're doing a five-part series. There's going to be lots of mysteries involved throughout the no, whole I, thing. I'm saying also like things that feel like they should be evidence. That's uh-huh. a good thing to pick up. It's not really evidence. Uh-huh. It's suspicious, right? But we don't know what it points to. Yeah, he could be a victim. What is it? They don't even know uh-huh. if it's human blood. Right. It could be sheep blood. Yeah, he could be killing sheep in his car. <laughs> <laughs> so they find the bloody truck. And then a few weeks later on October 17th, 1982, Kate Rich's little home on the prairie was burned to the ground in an act of arson. The next day, police found the handyman in a chicken coop he'd been living in on the grounds of a Pentecostal church commune. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
Uh-huh. Okay. It just go, you know. Yeah. Okay. 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 We're yeah. It's unfolding. There's a lot of stuff. There's happening. an it's an avalanche. There's okay. so much stuff happening okay. in the story. Okay. Forty two okay. year old Henry Lee Lucas was a thin, sun baked man with a handful of teeth and an ill fitting glass eye. <laughs> Mild mannered and polite, he voluntarily went with police for questioning. <sighs> Since the day Kate Rich disappeared, Montague County Sheriff W.F. Conway had been tracking this guy, mm-hmm. Henry Lee Lucas. Mm-hmm. Conway, for the last like handful of weeks, had slept four hours a night. He had been hospitalized for exhaustion. He was like really going for it. His nickname was the Bloodhound. Okay. Unrelated to this, but related in some ways. Okay. Oh, so he was Bloodhound before this case. Yeah. Okay. Dogged. <laughs> and this was the first time that Sheriff Conway had laid eyes on his number one suspect. Basically, Henry Lee Lucas and his 15-year-old common-law wife, Becky, had been working for one of Kate Rich's daughters in California. So that would be Obera Smart and her husband, Jack. Mm-hmm. And in May of 1982, Obera and Jack sent Henry and Becky to Texas to care for Obera's aging mother, Kate Rich. But obviously, like we know, it didn't work out. I really dug like the stinky badger that I am, but I couldn't <laughs> find any gossip about what happened. Okay. But for whatever reason, Kate Rich's other daughters thought Henry and Becky were super shady and they kicked the couple off the property in like a handful of days. Uh-huh. Henry and Becky, now homeless and without any employment, ended up at a local Pentecostal retreat center where they worked for, on the property for room and board through the summer of 1982 and then into the fall. So that's basically the full accounting of where Henry had been and mm-hmm. how he had met Kate Rich. So what? His room and board is a chicken coop? Yep. And why has he got a handful of teeth? Well, what do you mean? You said he got arrested with a handful of teeth? No, he in his mouth. Oh, <laughs> just a couple of teeth. <laughs> He's got four teeth. Oh, I thought he was just like, you know, shaking them like dice in his hands or you know, something. It's a, it's a weird story, so okay. I can see why <laughs> that's what you thought. Sometimes I, I don't know what you're going to understand and what you're not. Well, you're the one who wrote it, Muriel. I know. Handful of teeth. That's... I think that's a pretty regular thing to say. <laughs> For some reason, I didn't think you would know what necrophilia was. That's, I'm pretty sure it's when you have sex with dead bodies, You're right. right. Yeah. Okay, but I was cool. thinking I was setting you up for something funny, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I was really only at about like a 72% <laughs> positivity rate on the definition. So Henry Lee Lucas told Sheriff Conway that despite being kicked off the property, there were never any hard feelings with... Kate Rich. He was really fond of Kate and he visited her regularly, which people actually knew, mm-hmm. right? That's that was true. Henry claimed that he and his wife Becky had decided to leave Texas for California in September of 1982 and then ended up having to abandon their bloody car in the desert, right? That's how that happened. They had taken a trip and Okay. It you know, broke down or whatever. Nothing suspicious. <laughs> yeah. That's how that happened. All right. And police couldn't check Henry's story against Becky's because apparently no one had been able to find Becky since August oh, of God. 1982. So she'd been missing for 
about three months. That's so shady to have a 15 year old common law wife. Like you didn't even get married. Like, oh, I just, this is just my buddy. It's one of those things you read 1980s news articles Uh and sometimes things come across. You're just like, they're saying that like that's a normal thing. (laughs) You know? Yeah. It's, it's not that long ago. I was born in 83. It's not like I, it's strange to me because I, I am, have my brain. So uh-huh. I think like, oh, we, we have been doing this reality for a long time, but that's not <laughs> <No>. true. <laughs> okay, anyway, uh-huh. none of that was enough to hold the handyman. Not the knife bloody car, mm-hmm. not the missing common law wife. It just wasn't enough to piece together to hold him. Mm-hmm. But luckily, he had an outstanding warrant from Maryland on some random like car charge or car theft thing so sheriff conway was able to arrest and hold henry lee lucas without bail for a week or so but after maryland refused to extradite henry the time was up despite the totally creepy bloody car mysterious arson the missing 15 year old wife sheriff conway was forced to release henry into the wild in november 1982 on a $2,000 bond. With a pretty good hunch, this one-eyed dude living in a chicken coop was his man, but with no way to prove it, mm-hmm. Sheriff Conway called in the big guns. And this is going to be an institution that's going to loom large throughout this series. That would be the Texas Rangers, mm. as in Walker, Texas Rangers. <laughs> Not the baseball team. <laughs> I didn't know it was a baseball team, yeah, but yeah. I was, you know, sometimes people need a frame of reference. And that's the uh-huh. only one I have. Walker, Texas, baby. My dad used to love that show. I think it was back to back with Kung Fu. The legend continues. Uh huh. I could see your dad getting in, getting into that. So these are the guys in Texas who handle higher profile cases. They support law enforcement in Texas and stuff like murder cases. So bigger fish to fry when you have like a town of 400 people in a little tiny sheriff's department. Yeah. So Texas Ranger Phil Ryan joined Sheriff Conway and together they found the next break in the case. Kate Rich's purse lying in a dry creek bed. So that's Mm. obviously a pretty bad sign. Yeah. And although they hadn't found a body, it was looking very grim for Kate, her family, and the whole community. Mm Mm-hmm. From this moment, Sheriff Conway and Texas Ranger Phil Ryan continued to launch themselves into what turned out to be a months-long breakneck attempt to track down Henry Lee Lucas. But meanwhile, (laughs) a certain chicken coop-owning Pentecostal preacher knew exactly where his favorite handyman was. (laughs) You're so funny. I don't know. You just you're so <laughs> so thrilled with yourself. I know. I I do. I do write these for you. I you know. know so. You write them for yourself. Uh. <laughs> now we're gonna back up a few months to a hot sunny day in May, 1982. Reuben Moore was doing some highway driving through the ranch lands near Ringgold, Texas. Reuben had bought a defunct chicken farm in Stoneburg, Texas, about 10 miles from Ringgold, and built a sort of ramshackle, fundamentalist, Pentecostal utopia that locals called the Chicken Ranch. 
So Ruben. <laughs> That's not what he was going for. I was like, would you guys just call it the church? You're like, yeah, sure. Chicken ranch. I I feel like I felt those vibes uh-huh. from this story. He's like, just can you please? It's a church. Like, bonk, bonk. <laughs> I, so cruel. Ruben set up what he called the house of prayer for all people in a large barn on the property where he preached the Holy Spirit. And then in various outbuildings on the property, Reuben and his wife, Faye, lived with his elderly father, and they ran a church thrift shop and a roofing business. Mm -hmm. This day, in the sweltering heat of late May, the temps were climbing to the 90s when Reuben came across a couple who looked like they were in trouble, standing on the side of the road looking to hitchhike. The man was sunburnt, and both he and the young woman with him were ragged with a pile of luggage, obviously too big to carry on foot. So Mm -hmm. Reuben, a man of God, pulled over to see what he could do to help, and he entered Crazy Town, USA. (laughs) The couple said that they had been kicked off of Cape Rich's property in Ringgold, Texas, and were trying to get to California. All they needed was a lift to Wichita Falls so they could pick up a check waiting there for them. So Reuben puts all their luggage in his car and he hauls them 30 miles to Wichita Falls and... There's no check? There's no check. (laughs) So he looked at the sweaty, dejected couple with their mountain of luggage and he offered them an old chicken coop. (laughs) In exchange... (laughs) In exchange for worry. <laughs> the chicken ranch is literally still has a ton of chicken coops on it. Yeah. It <sighs> absolutely does. And Ruben is trying to make his way in the world. <sighs> so in exchange for work around the Pentecostal retreat, mm-hmm. Ruben said that the couple could have full use of an old coop with a concrete floor, a tin roof, and a bed. Nothing fancy, but Something that would work for people who clearly have nothing, right? Yeah, right. I guess I shouldn't laugh at that. I like how you said nothing fancy. It's it's a chicken coop. I mean, there's something about it. You're just like, yeah, I can help you. Got a chicken coop in the back. You can work for free and live in my garbage. To be honest, Uh I would do that right now. I'm kind of in that zone in my life. Anyway, that was that. Anyone's got a chicken coop. We'll be out there podcasting in it. Okay. I mean, seriously. Henry Lee Lucas ended up being surprisingly handy. He converted the coop into a decent three-bedroom apartment. He was good with tools, super handy. He he was even good with electronics. And he was totally into the church thing. Uh-huh. He attended services, and he refused to take any payment for his work on the chicken ranch or the roofing business and opted instead to donate his wages to the church. So... He basically told Ruben Moore, anytime I have money, I get into trouble. And uh-huh. he was like, all right, give it to the church. That <laughs> yeah. sounds good. Sorry, how old is he at this time? He is in his early 40s. Mm, right. So based on all this stuff, the Moors were pleasantly surprised with their new tenants. Mm-hmm. Everybody got used to what? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> old Henry and his 15-year-old girlfriend wife. They were just like, yeah, it sounds great. Uh, (laughs) And it gets so much worse. Of course. I know. It's horrible to even laugh about. It's just crazy that they were just like, yeah, this is is chill. I completely agree. Yeah. 
But they all got used to each other. It's the 80s. Everybody's cool with it. Oh, the 1980s, <laughs> 5,000 years ago. And as the summer crawled by, bit by bit, Henry started to tell his story. Mm-hmm. He lost his eye in a knife fight. He owned a scrapyard in Florida, so he had some income coming in, but he chose to live a nomadic life with his common-law wife, Frida Powell, who Henry called Becky. Mm-hmm. And then as for Becky... Reuben Moore said she spent most of her time meandering around the property alone, kind of like a little kid. Moore said she looked around 20 years old, but she acted closer to 12, which I guess wasn't a red flag. I don't know. Yeah, that's so disturbing. Yeah. But he's just like, yeah, it was weird. Uh, Henry alluded to some dark things in his past, but he seemed to be embracing religion and his simple life in this commune. He was polite, kind, and even though he'd had a falling out with Kate Rich's family, he still visited her regularly. They were visits that Kate looked forward to. And they all had a peaceful coexistence at the chicken ranch Mm -hmm. until the first bad thing happened a couple months in. August 20th, 1982, Henry Lee Lucas and Becky told the Moors they were going to leave. They planned to leave the house of prayer for all people and hitchhike to Florida to visit Becky's family. This was a a big blow, sort of heartbreaking for the Moors at this point. Reuben's elderly father gave the couple a ride to a truck stop on the nearest interstate and he slipped Henry 125 bucks as the couple hopped out of the car as kind of a farewell present. That's nice. But Mm -hmm. the next day, Henry Lee Lucas returned to the chicken ranch alone and crying. He said just hours into their journey to Florida, Becky had climbed into the cab of a semi truck and ran off with a random trucker and all of his money leaving Henry alone. I hope that that's true. She should do that. Please let that be what happened. So Henry spent a few days in his feelings before leaving again, vowing to track Becky down. And again, he came back surprisingly fast. He told the Moors he had tracked Becky down to a motel room nearly 400 miles away in San Antonio, Texas. And... This is without cell phones and internet, so pretty sleuthy, right? Yeah, and what, too quickly to get there and back in his weird hitchhiking? That's how he's doing, he's just hitchhiking and A pile of luggage and crying, his handful of teeth. So he says he's throwing his teeth at people. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a handful of an eye, you know? He found Becky, he says, in bed with this trucker, and Henry told the Moors he no longer had a wife. That was done. After that, Henry stopped showering. He stopped changing his clothes or shaving. And then the mood swings started. I have to tell you right now, I 100% completely picture this guy as someone who never changed or showered this entire time. So I think you might be fairly right, but they uh-huh. said it got way, way worse. Okay. Uh-huh. So I feel like that's, yeah, that's in rough. my consideration, that also seems pretty crazy. Okay. I remember number- reading something uh-huh. where... Henry Lee Lucas said that he, you know, really loved Becky and she was the first person he ever like brushed his teeth for. So I think that that is a mm-hmm. part of the reason why he had those, that handful of teeth to get thrown at people. Okay, great. Okay, so the mood swing started. Mood swing started and then the incoherent muttering started. 
So things are a little tense. And then in September 1982, after getting some cash from a roofing gig, Henry Lee Lucas did not give his cash to the church and instead disappeared again right around the last time Kate Rich was seen alive. But instead of Henry returning a few days later as per usual, Sheriff W.F. Conway darkened the doors of the chicken ranch instead. Mm -hmm. He told Reuben and Faye Moore, hey, this lady, this granny, Kate Rich, has disappeared and wrinkled, and her family is suspecting your handyman, Henry Lee Lucas, had something to do with it. So eventually, as we know, Henry resurfaced at the ranch in October and was arrested on an outstanding warrant from Maryland. And then by November, Sheriff Conway was forced to release Henry on bond, and Henry took off like a cat escaping a bathtub, right? <laughs> but... <laughs> right, because he, he, like cats, literally hate ba- baths. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, and guess who welcomed him with open arms? Our pastor, Reuben. Reuben Moore. Uh-huh. He was like the first person that Henry went to. And despite this concern from the sheriff, Reuben mm-hmm. Moore was like, yeah, man, I got your back. Now, I've read a handful of interviews with this Reuben Moore. That's how I piece this thing together uh-huh. in these newspaper archives. And I, I picture one of two guys. Like, on the one hand, I could see this hapless, generous dude that sees the good in everyone who mm-hmm. maybe has enough blind faith to jet power his way through red flags. <laughs> like, anything ugly or problematic uh-huh. or suspicious. Right. We're all that. sinners. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Who are we to judge? Exactly. And then on the other hand, I kind of could see a guy willing to overlook suspicious stuff in exchange for a good handyman. Uh Like, I don't know. Like, does that make me super cynical? No. I mean, that is what he was doing. I don't know. I I think it really literally could be one or the other. I just don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think at this point, Becky has disappeared. Uh And then a sheriff comes to your house and says... Kate Rich disappeared and we think it was Henry and Henry's gone. No, I know. I'm like, what? I don't understand why, but that's how it went. Okay. I mean, remember, he picked up a 40 something year old man whose young wife behaved with the maturity and mental capacity of a preteen. Mira did Moore's air account. quotes when she said uh, wife. I try to do that with my voice, but uh-huh. that's hard to do. Uh-huh. A guy who claimed to have a dark past and now was connected to the disappearances of two women in the span of like a month and a half. Mm -hmm. I would be suspicious, Mm -hmm. but I'm just saying. Anyway, Henry showed up at Ruben's door the night he was released from jail in November 1982 with a plan to flee into the bitter, cold November darkness. And Ruben gave him a hundred bucks and a pair of insulated overalls for the winter. So whatever. Definitely wasn't like, get out of my house. (laughs) Yeah. uh But true to form, Henry was back at the chicken ranch the next day and returned the $100 for the church. Henry felt like he was being targeted by law enforcement and that as an innocent man, his best bet was to stay with the Moors rather than flee into the night. And Ruben... Just had an optimistic gut feeling that Henry was a super good guy. And maybe he was right. Maybe there was some unfair 
targeting going on based on, you know, his... Yeah, it's muttering and his weird creepiness and yeah. his being fired in the bloody car and all, all that the, stuff. Yeah, yeah, all right. those things. Henry decided the answer wasn't to run away. It was to something, something, clear his name. And that meant settling back into his three-room shack and doing his thing. Unfortunately for Reuben Moore and his family, that meant Henry really starting to be a big old weirdo. <laughs> And this behavior shift was particularly unsettling because uh-huh. although the Moors were big Henry supporters, Sheriff Conway had spooked them a little by sharing the details of some of Henry Lee Lucas's background uh-huh. with the Moors. Okay, here we go. Henry Lee Lucas turned out had spent 10 years in prison for murdering his mother. Oh, my God. Back in 1960. 10 years for murdering his mother? He spent six of those years in a state hospital for the criminally insane. And then he also served a series of prison sentences for kidnapping a young girl, being convicted of car theft, and then also for burglary. But... Conway said he had served his time and mm-hmm. there was really nothing to do but wait. He wasn't in violation of any laws. You know, that was just the only thing that Conway could do is just say, hey, guys. Yeah. Just as a heads up. up, this guy is not like really that chill. Right. Moving into 1983, concerning things started disappearing from the church thrift shop, that would be knives, hatchets, <laughs> okay. and a whole ass bayonet. Okay, so killing weapons. Someone slashed the tires on Ruben's truck, and then someone also stuffed the exhaust pipes in Ruben's hot water heater with rags. So that filled his whole home up with carbon monoxide. And that was caught early, mm-hmm. but still pretty suspicious. <laughs> And at that point, Reuben Moore's wife, Faye, started carrying a 38 caliber pistol around the House of Prayer for All People just for her personal protection. She and Henry Lee Lucas kept getting into these staring matches. Oh, that is horrifying. In like a kind of half empty church retreat. So she was just like, I'm just going to carry this gun. Yeah, because what I'm not hearing is that there's you know, worshipers showing up at this place. I think that there are people in and out of the place, but mm-hmm. I don't think it's like a hot spot. I, it sounds, they use different terms for it, uh-huh. but they do use retreat and campground a lot, which makes me think the chicken ranch might've been a place where people knew they could crash. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. And I think, and then go to church and stuff like that. Get a hot meal, uh-huh. get something, a bayonet at the thrift shop. <laughs> <laughs> Some insulated overalls. Yeah, wander into a chicken scoop. <laughs> Throw some teeth in your eyes. This is really scary. I I, I, I agree. hate this. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Now a few months go by, and Reuben Moore says that in early June 1983, Henry abruptly left the church campground, telling the Moors. He was going to go look for Becky and Kate Rich to, quote unquote, free himself. Henry called from a truck stop in New Mexico, like a state over, a few days later to tell Ruben he had found Becky and Kate. But uh-huh. his engine had exploded and he needed money for a new engine. So okay. his car was broken down. Mm-hmm. 
Ruben by now is starting to have some doubts, you know, some fool me twice energy. Uh-huh. So he got his gun and he drove alone down to New Mexico to pick up Henry and maybe kill him if he has blood on his hands. Maybe possibly Becky and Kate Rich. She's still in uh-huh. it at this point. Yeah. When Ruben pulled into the Red X truck stop in St. John, New Mexico, Henry walked up to the car, arms spread, desperate, sobbing. His story? Jack Smart, Kate Rich's son-in-law from California, the one who originally hired Henry and Becky back in the spring of 1982. He said Jack Smart had driven down to New Mexico from California and kidnapped the girls. (laughs) They were gone. Becky and Grandma Kate? Yes. And Henry at the truck stop was so hysterical. He had scared the workers who were working there. Sure. And had also called police from a payphone, just yelling that his women had been stolen and nobody knew what to do or how to deal with him. (laughs) Who are you? What women? (laughs) What are you talking about? So Reuben Bohr drove Henry back to the chicken ranch in Texas in silence. But by now, the gears were turning. Maybe, just maybe, Henry killed these gals. Yeah. (sighs) And when Henry Lee Lucas gave Reuben a gun to hide, Reuben decided it was time to just tell Sheriff Conway, right? So Sheriff Conway came to the chicken ranch and the Moors spilled the beans. The erratic... (laughs) Sorry. Muriel's just pointing at me. I have no idea what that you was. You always hate it when I say spill the beans. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to put it in every episode, but you didn't say anything. I just, I, it, I, I just, I'm, I'm dead to it at this point. You've murdered me with spill the beans. Yeah. So that's just like a big numb spot in my soul. Well, they spilled them. Okay. <laughs> they spilled yeah, those beans all over the place. Them. The, okay. they, they told him all about, you know, in a panic, the erratic uh-huh. behavior, the missing knives, the bizarre story of this New Mexico kidnapping. And Sheriff Conway's like, that's all pretty freaky, guys, but there's nothing we can do. There's still no evidence of anything. Mm-hmm. And Ruben Moore's just, you know, oh, man, this sucks. What about that gun that he gave me to hide? Mm-hmm. And then, after months and months of work, the chase was over. Henry was a felon, and he was definitely not supposed to have a gun, and Sheriff Conway finally had something to arrest him for. Mm. So now they have Henry on a weapons charge, sitting in the county jail, but still... No evidence linking him to the disappearances of Becky Powell or Kate Rich. And Henry was totally clammed up about the women. He wasn't saying anything. Okay, no more of this whole Jack from California got him thing? No, he was chain smoking, he drank coffee, and he loved to chat about whatever, but he just would not say a word about the women and he wouldn't confess to anything related to that. Right. So after a while, Sheriff Conway and Texas Ranger Phil Ryan decided to just let him stew in his own juices. Just give him the old silent treatment. Just the old wait and see. (laughs) And it worked. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I was thinking, this is a terrible metaphor considering how dark this is going to get. But like the shave and a haircut bit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. As soon as they stopped talking to him, he was just like, 
wait. <laughs> I have something to say. Hold my teeth. After a few, <laughs> after a few days, aren't you glad I gave you that bit to run with this whole time? After a few days, Henry sent a note through a deputy to the sheriff. It read, "I have done something terrible, and I want to talk to the sheriff." And Henry made his first confession. He had stabbed eighty-year-old Kate Rich in the chest, then dragged her down into a culvert and had sex with her corpse. Afterwards, Lucas said he dismembered her body, buried it, then got nervous, dug up the bones, and then burned them in his stove at the chicken ranch. Henry calmly took investigators to the culvert where they found Kate's glasses and some of her clothing. Mm. Then Henry took everyone to his converted coop on the church grounds they dragged the wood-burning stove outside to sift through the ashes for pieces of bones and henry walked everyone to the nearby pits that he dug on the church grounds and Mm -hmm. lined with lye where the rest of kate's clothing was hidden after that henry made his second confession he had also stabbed Frida Becky Powell to death during an argument at the chicken uh. ranch. He had also had sex with her corpse before dismembering her body. And then again, he offered to show them where she was. So Henry this time took investigators to a remote field in Denton County where they found these dismembered human bones scattered in the grass. So, R.I.P. R.I.P. Are you kidding me? Granny Kate and Becky, a.k.a. Frida. Yeah. Horrific ending to this saga for everyone involved. And after the confessions, things moved pretty quickly. Within a week or so, Henry Lee Lucas's arraignment for murder charges and the death of Kate Rich were scheduled. On June 21st, 1983, Henry had his day in court. He didn't read the arraignment beforehand. He didn't have a lawyer. And when the judge, Frank Duthit, asked him if he was mentally competent to stand trial, Henry just said, there's about a hundred women out there that says different. Oh. And everything sort of froze. That's a crazy ass way, way to say that. Yeah. And as the questioning continued... Henry, matter of fact, just laid it out. He says he kept, you know, going to prison, getting committed to these psychiatric facilities, and they kept letting him out, and he just kept doing bad things. He couldn't get help, and he couldn't stop himself. That he said he was mentally competent to stand trial and definitely guilty of whatever they had on him. And Judge Duthit is like trying to field this information mm-hmm. he says you know murder's a serious crime right and henry was just like yep i got about a hundred of them he keeps dropping the hundred thing yeah and then he says he'd like to keep on helping with finding the bodies like he'd done with becky and kate uh-huh 
flabbergasted, Judge Duthit kind of grabbed the wheel and finished doing the court stuff. He appointed Henry a lawyer and he entered a not guilty plea on on the charges based on Henry's behalf. Meanwhile, he's just got like cold sweat dripping down the back of his neck. Like, oh my God, what have I just, what kind of day at work is this? Right. And he was completely unaware that actually... Henry had already confessed to seven more murders in Texas just prior to the arraignment. In the handful of days between when he was arrested and his arraignment, he'd been sitting in his jail cell sketching out pictures of his victims for police with the details of the murders written in the margins. Victims of what he said was his eight-year cross-country murder spree. Texas Ranger Phil Ryan sat in Henry's cell with him while Henry meticulously drew hairstyles strand by strand and detailed clothing. And after his arraignment and this confession to the 100, Mm -hmm. the sketches didn't stop. Eventually, Ranger Ryan began to take the sketches and send them out into the world to police stations around the country with any kind of matching cold case. And at the time, mm-hmm. in 1983, there was no shortage of cold cases. There were hundreds of police departments desperately looking for information on open and cold murder cases because, folks, in 1983, America was at the height of serial killer mania. Around 770 serial killers were active in the U.S. in the 1980s. In 1983 alone, there was an estimated 5,000 deaths attributed to serial killers. In the 1970s and 80s, you've got Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. You've got Gary Ridgway. You have Richard Ramirez, John Wayne Gacy. They were all active. At some point in this period. Hold on. So I'm not a true crime fanatic. Obviously, that's the whole point of the show. But Henry Lee Lucas is not a name that gets... I know all the names you just said. Just about. A couple of them I didn't know. But just about, I know all of those. But Henry Lee Lucas, I've never heard of. Yeah. But he's up there with them. Uh Uh-huh. And that's where we'll start off next week with the so-called golden years of serial killing and the contributions of Henry Lee Lucas to that time in history. <laughs> contributions. <laughs> Muriel <laughs> contributions. <laughs> Sometimes I just write things that I uh-huh. think and they're different than uh-huh. than how like. regular, real, nice, respectable people would say them. Oh yeah, thanks for that whole like, oh, imagine something worse than it necrophilia it's like oh you kill the person first and then do it with them and, and then, then chop them up <laughs> then chop them up then burn them yeah thanks for that muriel well was i right what that that was worse than necrophilia yeah it's yeah it's yeah it's 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 a it's pretty bad but also like who's what necrophiliac is um like pretty much you know what? You go into a morgue and have sex with. Like, how are you even around dead bodies if you're not the one killing them? Use that. How about that for your imagination, huh? <laughs> how about that? Paint a picture for that one, you know? Nick the Little You should be writing fortune cookies, man. <laughs> Thank you 
so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, post-production, and imagining. This podcast was recorded in our living room. To help support the podcast and to unlock exclusive episodes, please sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. If you're enjoying this five-part epic, it would be amazing for Muriel and I if you texted it to a loved one in your life who would enjoy it as well. Your support keeps us inspired and motivated. Great ways to help the show include leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rating and following us on Spotify. Connecting with us on social media. Plus, we love hearing from you. Our DMs are open. Slide right in. And you can email us. You can find all that information and the links in the show notes of this episode or... You can visit our website at murialsmurders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. All right, that's it. All right, peace be with you guys. Let's get on to part two. Part two.